Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 9. This morning is a Lord's Supper emphasis service. Every three months on our Lord's Supper observance, we observe it on the first Sunday of every month. We alternate between morning and evening service. Every three months, I have a service where I preach a message of emphasis. And so that one message will be in the morning service emphasizing the next Three months later, we'll be in an evening service, and so those of you who have not been to our evening services will not have heard a Lord's Supper or emphasis message for six months, but this message is kind of jumping off of where we left off in our last Lord's Supper emphasis message, which would have been three months ago in an evening service, and there I preached Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. This morning, we will look at Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 15. The title of the message, The New Testament in My Blood. We will read the passage together as we uh, step into our time this morning. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, or excuse me, from where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place, excuse, places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now, once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Every month when we join in fellowship around the memorial that we call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, we read the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. He took the bread, he gave thanks and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Jesus' body was broken physically, physically suffering a cruel death at the hands of the very men that he came to save. That is the memorial of the bread as we partake of it. After the same manner, the scriptures tell us Jesus took the cup. His words to his disciples were this. This, speaking of the cup, 
is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus Christ stated that his that through his blood would come something called the new testament or the new covenant. He said this is the new testament in through his blood. The concept of the new covenant was one that would have been very familiar to the Jewish mind. It would have been very familiar to the disciples. The biblical reference to the prophecies of the new covenant are found in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 say this. Listen as I read. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this covenant, excuse me, but this, excuse me, shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and will write it on their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is one of numerous passages in the Old Testament where God is describing to the nation of Israel what he called the new covenant. It was a covenant that was supposed to replace the covenant that had failed. The covenant that Israel had failed to keep, that being the Mosaic covenant, that which we call the law of Moses. Now there is little doubt that when Jesus Christ was standing with his disciples and he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, that the minds of his disciples were reminded of this passage. But what Jesus meant in its entirety had not yet been fully revealed and would not be fully understood until after Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Enter then the book of Hebrews. We mentioned last time that the book of Hebrews is organized more like a sermon than it is like an epistle. We also mentioned that the purpose of the homily is to assert the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament sacrificial system, over the angels, over man, just to assert the superiority of Christ. Last time we had a Lord's Supper emphasis service, three months ago, we looked at Hebrews 9, 1 through 14, and learned three important principles. I'm going to remind you or introduce you to those principles this morning, though if you want them to be fleshed out, you'll need to go back and listen to that sermon on the website. These important principles were this. Number one, redemption was foreshadowed through the Old Testament sacrificial system. So the Old Testament system foreshadowed Christ's redemption. Number two, the second principle, redemption was imperfect in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It, it was not perfect. It did not work as perhaps it was designed to work. And we know that the reason being because of man's sin. Three, the third principle was that redemption was perfected through Jesus' blood. So the Old Testament sacrificial system was a foreshadowing of Christ, of redemption. The Old Testament sacrificial system was imperfect and therefore was replaced with the perfection of Jesus Christ's sacrifice through his blood. Today, as we continue, 
we're going to understand not only the superiority of Christ's sacrifice to the Old Testament sacrificial system, but we will also understand the superiority of the New Testament in Christ's blood when compared with the Old Testament that was founded in the blood of animals. Jesus Christ said, and we, we, we hear it once a month, plus whenever other times we're reading that passage of Scripture, this is the New Testament in my blood. Let's understand what it means this morning. First principle we see this morning in verses 15 through 22, the necessity of blood. The necessity of blood. The passage that we look at today begins with the words, and for this cause, in verse 15, and for this cause. It is difficult to miss the reality when you see a transition like that, that what Paul is about to say, what he's about to speak about, is an extension, perhaps an application of that which he has already said. He's applying that which we've already learned. We gave the principles of that which was already learned from last time. So last time we remember that we learned that Jesus Christ's blood was the perfection of God's redemptive work for mankind. As this fleshes out in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter would say this in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, excuse me, as a lamb, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That really sums up what was presented in Hebrews 9, 1 through 15, that we were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, that we were not redeemed with the blood of lambs, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ's redemptive work was perfect, comprehensive, and complete. As we step into our passage today, we must first answer a couple of questions. We spoke as we read of this passage of the mediator, the mediator of a new covenant. So we must first ask, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the New Testament, or that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the New Covenant? Well, the Greek word, which the King James translates mediator, literally means a go-between, or a spokesman. This is found in verse 15. It described a person who served as a third party in a dispute or in a transaction. Now, the purpose of the mediator, specifically as the word was often used, was to reconcile two opposing parties, one to the other. And so, as it says, for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, the mediator of the New Covenant. We see that he is literally seen as the third party that stands between God and the world, that stands between the God of the universe and a world lost in sin. His purpose is then to reconcile these two entities which are at odds one with another. And Christ was qualified for this position as we see in the scriptures because of the sufficiency of his blood for the redemptive work of mankind. So what does it mean that he is the mediator of the new covenant? It means he's the go-between. It means that there is a third party, Jesus Christ, between God and man to reconcile these two parties one to another. The next question we must ask is this. What is the New Testament? What is 
the New Testament. We know that Jesus Christ is the mediator of this testament. What is the New Testament? The Greek word, which our King James translators translate as testament, is the word diatheke. That doesn't mean much to you, but generally it speaks of a contract, or more specifically of a will. In the New Testament, the word is used synonymously with the word covenant. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, often used this same word to describe the Mosaic Covenant, often used this same word to describe the Old Testament covenants that God had made with his people. It is even used as far back as Genesis to describe the covenant of circumcision. And so it's the word that means covenant. It's the word that means testament. It's the word that means will. This is, in fact, why the two sections of our Bible are labeled Old Testament and New Testament, because the former describes the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the life and interaction between God and men under the law. The latter describes the New Testament, the New Covenant, the life and interaction of men under grace. And so that's why we have the division of the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bibles, and that's what it means to have a testament. It's a will or it's a covenant. Now, Paul goes on to state here in verses 16 and 17 that a testament or a will demands by necessity the death of the testator or the death of the one who wrote the will. In other words, when you have a will, a person receives no benefit from that will until the person who wrote that will dies. That is fairly typical. Now in our legal system, sometimes things get a little bit different. But as far as the typical understanding of what a will is, it is a person who writes down his will for after his death. And there is no legal power in that document until the day upon which he dies. We must understand, however, that the concept of a testament in Scripture encapsulated two different ideas. Two different ideas that encapsulated the idea of a a testament. There was the idea of a one-sided testament. That's better known as a will. That's what we would think of as a will. Whereby one person has promised something to another upon the condition of his death. When I die, this happens. When I die, you get this. When I die, my possessions go to this person. That is what we typically understand to be a will. What we would consider to be a one-sided covenant. The other person on the other side of the will needed to do nothing. To receive that. I could make out my will today and I could decide that Jared Grismore is going to receive all of my earthly possessions. Why Jared? He hasn't done anything for me. He hasn't done anything in particular that would make me want to give it to him. But this is a one-sided deal here. I'm writing my will. It's my will. I can give it to who I will. I want to give it to Jared. Jared's the man. He gets everything that's mine. That's a one-sided covenant, a testament, a will. There's also the idea of a two-sided testament. This is something we see often in scripture. We often call this a covenant, and I would call this more of a pure covenant, whereby two people promise each other something, and it would be sealed with blood oftentimes. The penalty of breaking that covenant would be death. So for a one-sided covenant, for a will, the condition of that covenant was death. The person had to die for the will to be enacted. For a two-sided covenant, uh, covenant proper, the seal was blood, and the penalty for failure in that covenant was often death, or something that was sealed with a death. That brings us to verses 18 through 22. Have you followed with me thus far? We're trying to lay the groundwork for the argument that 
Hebrews is making. Hebrews is a very complicated book. We need a lot of groundwork here. Verses 18 through 22. Paul then describes the nature of the first covenant. So let's think back to that first covenant, what we would call the Mosaic covenant or the law. As we think back to that, Paul describes the nature of that covenant. Moses had read the law to the people. You recall this. This was in Exodus 24 is where this took place. Moses read the law to the people. He then took the blood of calves with hyssop branches and sprinkled it upon the people, upon the tabernacle, and upon the vessels. So all the people listened. They all listened to this covenant. They agreed to this covenant. This covenant had the blessings and it had the cursings. If you do this, I will bless you. If you don't do this, I will curse you. If you do these certain things, I will curse you. If you don't do these certain things, uh, I will bless you. And the covenant was, was read back and forth. And then Moses sealed that covenant by taking hyssop and sprinkling it on the people, on the tabernacle, on the vessels in the tabernacle with blood. And that blood was the sealing for that covenant. This blood initiated a two-sided covenant that we call the Mosaic Covenant. In this covenant, God obligated himself to the nation of Israel to bless them physically. God did. He obligated himself on that day. He said, I will bless you. I will make all of the diseases of these nations that you will go into, that none of them will touch you. Your crops will grow. No enemy will be able to stand before you. You will have wealth. You will have health. You will have blessings. I am committing to you this day that this is yours. But this was a two-sided covenant. God demanded something back. God demanded something of Israel. God demanded Israel to obligate themselves to obey him completely. To obey the law that he had set up. And so God says, when you obey my law, I will bless you physically. When you disobey my law, I will curse you physically. The blessings and the cursings were both a part of the covenant. And each person had a responsibility to that covenant. God had a responsibility. Man had a responsibility. God had an end that he had to uphold. Man had an end that he had to uphold. And if man didn't uphold his end, then God would curse him. That was the nature of the, old te- of, the, of the covenant. Now there was no contingency for God not upholding his end because God is faithful. God cannot fail. God will uphold his end. This was a two-sided covenant. God had obligated himself. Israel obligated herself. But see, the penalty, these cursings that would ultimately end in death if Israel refused to obey God's word became a great problem. The first time any man in Israel offended God's law, he was worthy of death. The first time anyone in Israel offended the Mosaic Covenant, God would curse them. They were worthy to die. So within God's law, he made a provision. He made a provision for the blood of an innocent animal to be shed in the place of an offending party. Thus, when a man found himself guilty under God's law, he could take a lamb or a goat, blameless, spotless, blemishless lamb, and he could offer that lamb upon the altar of God. The blood of the innocent for the blood of the guilty. A means of maintaining fellowship and maintaining covenantal blessing with God for men attempting to meet God's righteous standards 
with an incursed heart. And so God said, this is the thing. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. The end of the disobedience will be death. The end of the obedience will be life. But see, because no man can keep God's law in its entirety, God says, I'm going to make a provision for you. When you sin, take a spotless lamb, a blameless animal, kill that animal. Sacrifice that animal upon the altar. Drain its blood. And that blood will be for you the remission of that sin. It will be a covering upon your sin. Now we know from scripture that the law itself was not a problem. The law was holy and right and good. That contained within the precepts of the law was everything necessary to be right with God. But we know from biblical history, by its nature... That this arrangement, this testament, this covenant, the Old Testament, was insufficient. If I could give you a picture of what it was like to live in Jerusalem, what it might have been like to see the Temple Mount, or before Jerusalem was established, what it might have been like to step into the tabernacle of God, what it would have been like was blood everywhere. Blood would have constantly been flowing from off the altar of God. Blood pouring off the altar as lambs were slain again and again and again, trying to atone for the sins of the people. Why was there so much blood? Why were there so many animals? Because men continued in their sins. They had entered into this covenant with God, but they were sinners and they continued to sin. They were constantly offending the law of God. They were constantly offending the covenant of God. Blood was constantly flowing from, with, from off the altar. Men, even men desirous to obey the law of God, desirous of righteousness, found no means in and of themselves to secure that righteousness. They couldn't do it. Their hearts were sinful, stained with sin. A man could atone for his sin through the blood of a lamb, but that didn't change the fact that his heart was enslaved with sin. It didn't change his heart. It just covered his sin. Enter the New Testament in Christ's blood. We saw, first of all, this morning, the necessity of blood. Why was blood so necessary? The scriptures tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Blood had to be shed. It was a part of God's law. When you sin, the blood of an animal must be shed for that sin, to atone for that sin, to cover that sin. So blood was flowing constantly. Men were still sinning. Hearts of unrighteousness before God. It was almost as if it was just a patch. The Old Testament was insufficient. Enter the New Testament in Christ's blood. That's what we see in verses 23 through 28. See, the law had failed at its intended purpose. Not because of a weakness in the law, necessarily, but because of a weakness in man to keep the law. This translated into a weakness in the Old Covenant because the Old Covenant by its very nature involved, included Man. Certainly the blood of animals could atone for the sin of man. It did for thousands of years. But it didn't solve his sin problem. Certainly the keeping of the law brought man into fellowship with God. But the law held man to a standard that he could not attain, much less maintain. Man couldn't do it. There was still a barrier between God 
and man, and no amount of shedding of blood was going to remove animal blood, excuse me, was going to remove that barrier. The law proved that there was no two-way covenant between God and man that mankind was able to keep his side of the agreement. Sin was man's constant failing. No two-way agreement would work. God could not stipulate his blessing upon any condition that man could meet because man could never meet the conditions of God's holiness, of God's righteousness, of God's perfection. Man can't do it. Man's got a problem. And that problem is not surmountable in and of himself. But what if? What if there was a way that man could be freed from his sin problem? What if there was a way that man could have a constant relationship uh, with God without the demands of the law driving a wedge between him and his creator? What would it take for such a thing to happen? Verse 17 reminds us that without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So blood must be shed, right? There must be blood. We know furthermore that we would need some way, not simply to cover our sins, but to pay for our sins. So we'd need a new covenant. But see, we can't enter into a covenant that we can keep. A two-way covenant wouldn't work. We can't have a covenant that we have an obligation in. Because man's sin just can't allow for that. But what if someone could take our place? What if somebody could pay our debt for us? What if somebody else could take our place so that we could be right with God? What if we were changed from the inside out? What if we weren't just covering our sins with the blood of animals, but what if our sins were literally removed from us? What if we were given a new heart? What if we were given a new goal? What if we were given a new nature? See, that's what was needed. There needed to be a change from the inside out. Something from the outside in would never work. Something that obligated man to try to keep the, the standards of a holy God wouldn't work. We needed someone to take our place. And we needed someone that could change us from the inside out. Enter Jesus Christ. Fully man, born of a woman, born under the law. A man tempted in every way that you and I are tempted and yet never once failing to meet God's perfect standard or failing to obey God's law. He was sinless. He did meet God's requirement in its entirety. He never failed at the law of God. He entered into a life born under the law. Born into the first covenant. He was born with an obligation to the Mosaic covenant. And he kept every obligation that the Mosaic Covenant imposed upon him. He did not offend in one of the minutest elements of God's Mosaic Law. He was perfect. He was sinless. That's why it's so important that the Scriptures tell us he was not just born of a woman, but he was born under the law. See, because he couldn't have replaced the Old Covenant if he hadn't fulfilled the Old Covenant. But he had fulfilled the Old Covenant. Because he was born under a Jewish Mosaic law system. He was born in obligation to that covenant and he fulfilled that obligation entirely. A man who could do all of this because he was not just fully man, but he is also fully God. And therefore full of authority and full of power. 
As a perfect man, as God in flesh, Jesus had the authority to be a sufficient replacement for you and for me. His perfection, his obedience to God, and his authority made him the one and only man to ever live who could pay the penalty for sin for another man. He is the only man who ever lived who could take upon himself your sin because he had no sin of his own to pay for. But what would be required? What would be required for such a transaction to take place whereby this perfect man, God in flesh, could bear my sin in his body? What would be necessary? Verse 17 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Nothing less would be required of God for this transaction to take place than the blood of Jesus Christ. A life for a life transaction whereby God would accept us. Jesus Christ would accept the punishment of death that was deserved by us to meet God's righteous requirements so that God would then accept us through his son. Just as every day under the first testament the blood of an innocent lamb needed to be spilt to cover the sin of the guilty, so too the blood of the innocent son of God needed to be spilt to atone for the sin of guilty men. But this blood, this New Testament blood, was quite different than the blood of the innocent lamb under the First Testament. We see that in verses 24 through 28. Verse 24 tells us that Christ did not enter into the Holy of Holies to make this sacrifice, but rather he entered into the very presence of God. We recall from the Old Testament that once a year the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies and he made that atonement with blood upon the mercy seat. Sprinkling the mercy seat with the blood and this one year atonement would be that atonement through which the sins of the people would be covered. Christ didn't enter into the Holy of Holies to make his atonement. Verse 24 tells us he went into the very presence of God. Verse 25 and 26 tell us that Christ did not need to offer up his blood daily, but that a once-for-all offering was and is and always will be sufficient to pay for the sins of the entire world. So whereas every day there needed to be sacrifices, whereas every year the Day of Atonement would come and the high priest had to cleanse himself and enter into the holiest of all, Jesus Christ's sacrifice was a once-for-all one suffering, one death, sacrifice upon the cross of Calvary, and that one sacrifice paid for the sins of those past, present, and future for all of eternity. Verse 27 and verse 28 tell us that the result of this sacrifice is dramatically different than the result of sacrifices under the law. That Christ's one-time sacrifice bore our sins. And that all who believe on his name and thus are awaiting his second return will at that time receive the full realization of their salvation. Verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, verse 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sin of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Our salvation is coming because of the blood of Jesus Christ for those who have accepted that 
gift. And so I bring you back to that night long ago in the upper room when Jesus and his disciples ate their final Passover meal together. There, as Jesus took the cup, he lifted it and he said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Signifying that the drinking of that cup was a reminder to them, a reminder of the importance of the blood of Christ to the salvation which they were awaiting and longing for and would one day experience at his second coming. See, we are born again if you've accepted Jesus Christ by grace through faith, believing on his name unto salvation. And by nature of that, we are considered by God to be saved, and yet our salvation is in fact a future event. We are saved from our sin, the penalty. We are saved from, by and large, the power of sin, but we are not saved yet from sin's presence. We still have a flesh. It is still within us. We still have a heart that is sinful. But one day, it will all be gone. Full salvation will be realized at Jesus Christ's second coming. And that is what our observance of the Lord's table is to remind us of. When Jesus Christ said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, we're supposed to remember that the Old Testament is done away. That the shedding of lambs upon the altar of God is done away. Because there was a once for all sufficient sacrifice on the cross of Calvary for your sins and for mine that covered our sins. That as we receive the free gift of salvation that is applied unto our lives and into our hearts. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And then we then can eagerly Longingly look in hope toward the day when our Savior will return. And that's why in the command in the Lord's table, Jesus Christ says, Ye do show until I come. So as we partake of this same memorial in a matter of moments this morning, Christ is saying the same thing to us at the New Testament. The new covenant, the promise of salvation and an eternal inheritance are the results of the spilled blood of Christ. And that is what he wants us to remember this morning. Now I've spoken to us today. I've spoken to you today. Specifically to those of you who have been saved. Who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Who have made that decision and therefore have received the free gift of salvation. Yet it would be foolish for me to assume that everyone in this room has made that decision for himself personally. So I would invite you to be honest with yourself this morning as I ask the question. Have you ever personally accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior to save you from your sins? The gift is free for all who will accept it. Bought already by the blood of Jesus Christ. Once for all sacrifice that paid the penalty for your sin. And Jesus Christ reaches out his arms with salvation in his hands and says it's a free gift for you. I've paid the price already. The gift is here if you will but accept it. If you will but receive it. But the fact that your sin is already paid for does not mean that there is no requirement to receive it. See... 
You must recognize that you are a sinner. You must recognize that you have no ability to save yourself. You must recognize that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sin when he shed his blood on the cross for you, for me. You must accept this truth through belief on his name, not simply believing that Jesus Christ exists or that Jesus Christ was a good man or even just believing that Jesus Christ was God, but placing your personal faith in his person, in his work, believing that what Jesus Christ said and what he did is true and that what he did on the cross is able and sufficient to save you of your sins. And as you place your faith in him, you receive from him that free gift, which is eternal life. So the Bible tells us, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I invite you, if you have not made that decision this morning, to do so. You can do so in the quietness of your own seat. You say, Pastor, I don't quite understand. I don't quite understand everything that... that that this entails. I encourage you, come see me after the service. I'll take an open Bible and I'll show you from the scriptures how you can know for sure that you can be on your way to heaven when you die. How you can know for sure that you have accepted and received this free gift of salvation. But for those of us who are born again believers this morning, I encourage you. This memorial that we are about to partake in is not one that should be partaken flippantly. We are taking the opportunity to remember the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. It is the blood of the New Testament. It is the very access by which we can enter into the presence of God by grace through faith. He is our one mediator of the covenant. The third party that stood between God and man and reconciled them together through his blood so that you might have a true and living relationship with the God of the universe. Let's not forget that this morning as we partake. Let's not allow this remembrance, this memorial to become ritual. Let's not allow this memorial to become to lose its effect. Let's give it the worth that is due unto it as a remembrance of all that Christ has done for us through his blood.